Hello, and welcome to another episode of Setting the Tone, an ER retrospective, the show where we do a chronological breakdown of every episode of our favorite TV medical drama. My name is Elizabeth, and with me today, as always, are Lauren. Hello. And Daniel. Hey. Today, we'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 13, titled Luck of the Draw. Lucky 13. Gotta love it. Which aired on January 12th, 1995. Lauren, what was going on this week, 25 years ago? Well, the channel that would eventually become the CW begins broadcasting in New York. This started off as the WB, home of Buffy for a while, and some other real great teenage melodramas of the day. And now it's the mess of the Arrowverse. And it's wonderful, okay? Sure, we'll go with that. They also have the Charmed reboot, which was really good from what I saw of it. Thank you very much. Anyway. And and whose line? Oh, that's true, And Penn and Teller Fool Us. Okay, fine. They're fine. They're, They're a good channel. Don't fucking trash the CW. Along with that, this is something that I know nothing about. The NHL strike ended, allowing a 48-game season to begin. I guess typically there are 82 games in a season. Yep. They occasionally have strikes where they're, they have lockout shortened seasons. I think the 2013 one was one of them. and that's what I, I know the Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup in one of the ones that was shortened recently. Cool. I know nothing about sports. And then we got Dumb and Dumber is still our number one movie for the fourth week in a row. And for those of you curious about how my sanity is holding up, Unbended Knee is still the number one song. We got that two-week reprieve when we were not recording. And I'm back to my boys to men hell. When will this ever end? I have told Lizzie not to look forward or to spoil it for me. No one tell me when this madness will be done. I want to be pleasantly surprised and shout from the rooftops. It doesn't get better. In terms of song selection. But is it not boys to men? It is, in fact, not boys to men. That's all I care about at this point. (laughs) All right. So uh, with this week's episode, we've got 31.2 million viewers. Again, we're nowhere near. Well, I mean, I guess we're getting nearer to the peak, but we're we're not at the peak yet for season one. We still got a few more million to add to the party here. Uh, and we open this week's episode in the parking garage uh, with the, just the best little vintage blue Beetle bug car coming in. And we see that it's Susan's car parked right next to Mark Green's piece of shit. This thing is a shit bucket. Good Lord, Green. Just like have some respect for yourself. He's a resident. That's true. I mean, chief resident, though. That's got to be worth something. I, I highly doubt that there's a big pay difference between him and Susan. Anyway, but so they're talking as they get out of the cars. We're still kind of having the carryover from last week's episode about uh, the cardiac patient that died on Lewis's watch uh, because Kaysen didn't let her present the full history and he had a pre-existing condition that Kaysen wasn't made aware of because he didn't let her make him aware of it. And so he has made a big stink about it and she now has to go talk to Morgan Stern about it, basically. So she's going into a meeting with him in an hour about it. And, you know, she's understandably nervous about this. This is probably the most stressful thing that she's had to deal with in her young career. And, you know, she's saying to Mark as she goes in, maybe I'll get lucky and Kaysen will fall in front of a bus. And, of course, it's just her luck that Kaysen happens to be exiting his car right in front of them as she says that. And then he just manages to be even more of a dick than usual, saying, good morning, Dr. Green, as he walks by without even looking at or acknowledging Susan's existence and I just wrote down in my notes that Kaysen dresses like a bad Sinatra cosplayer with his stupid fucking fedora hat and his jack like just I just hate his long trench yeah I hate him so much yeah when I was looking when I was looking I was like oh did Kaysen is is he cosplaying some like 
1950s supervillain or something like that. Or mobster. Or he, yeah. Not Dick even mobster, but just... Like... Exactly, yeah. And then, after Jerkbag Kaysen exists and we hate him, we get a lovely shining ray of light that is baby Deb Chen running down the stairs frantically after Benton. And this is... She is played by the lovely Ming-Na Wen. Um, she's following him around like a lost puppy. Just she cannot keep up with him at all. And I cannot get over how young Ming-Na Wen looks in this season. We find out that Deb is Benton's new student. And that Benton insists Carter is going to show her around. Carter's like, oh, well, are you going up to cert? And Benton's like, yes, but I can't babysit you in the OR because we have somebody coming in and... I have back-to-back surgeries. I don't have time to make sure you're standing in the right place. Show Deb around. Now, Lizzie, do you have... I, I know you love Ming-Na Wen. Do you, do you want to share some of your thoughts about her with us? I do. She's in my top five favorite characters in the entire... Of, like, the entire series of this show. I just love her character. I love her as an actress. I love her in basically, like, every single thing I see her in. Yeah, I just find it really weird that, like, she's here for, like... A season and then gets brought back for like a whole huge huge chunk of the latter 10 of the latter 10 seasons i think yeah season six is when she comes back right yeah season six is when she returns she's gonna be with us for most of the rest of season one i don't know exactly when she leaves if it's like before the finale of this season or early season two but she does get a an actual ending unlike a lot of other side characters like she doesn't get bobbed she gets an actual like send-off which is even stranger because she does appear so i mean we're almost to the halfway point this is the halfway point of season one so she comes in halfway through the season and then she's gone um by the end or very early into season two um with an official like send-off so I'm, i'm curious to know what the backstory is there on the writing side of things of like was there a conflict schedule wise with her? Did she get another job? Like, was there, I'm curious to know because she's not a bad character and she's not a character who is an ill-conceived fit. Like she fits very well for how late into the game she's coming in here. Um, now that we've got everybody established. So it's strange that she goes away so quickly, but she comes back in season six by then she's less well-known as Deb and better known as Jing Mei, kind of her more, un-anglicized version of her name um carter still kind of affectionately refers to her as deb but he's pretty much the only one who does it and by that point like i said it's more of a like term of affection she's probably most famously known as the voice actor or voice actress of disney's mulan and uh yay yeah that's one of my favorite disney classics and uh, probably her most famous role prior to er was as chun lee in uh, street fighter and she's also been fantastic on all six or seven seasons, however many have aired at this point. I am way behind on it, but she's been absolutely fantastic on uh, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., on currently airing on ABC, and all of it's on Disney Plus or Hulu or Netflix or one of the one of the streaming services that are basically turned into a cable subscription by now. Six seasons. Six seasons. Okay, cool. On ABC. Yeah, we were, I think we're, we left off on like season, early season five. Yes. This one. Yeah, so we're way behind. But and then after that, her little intro, we go over to the nurse's station and we have our first audio, we have our first little clip of the episode and just sort of the general chaos that goes with the nurse's station. I just found it entertaining. So here we go. Five bucks gets you Super Lotto and Instapick. Timmy. Fast. Carol. Oh, why not? Morning, gang. Timmy, what do we got? 
Our specials for today are Suicidal Junkie in four. Going once. I'll take it. I could use a little cheering up. Hamster versus Finger in the suture room. Ross took it. HIV positive kid with a busted tooth in one. Lots of blood. What's an LL Owie? That's a scissors in the left leg. It's a medical term. Valdo's back, stinky as ever. Oh, He's drunk, possible seizure. I could use a hand. Double glove time. I just like the hamster. <laughs> the hamster <laughs> biting someone. I like the left leg owie. Yeah, left leg owie. That's a medical that's term. A medical term. <laughs> it's, I love when we have Timmy. I do love Timmy. Exactly. That's why I pulled this. Is I was like, I just love Timmy. I just love having him around and having him direct traffic. <laughs> I was about to say, it feels like we haven't seen Jerry in a while, but it's only been like two episodes. Yeah, right? Yeah, and also, too, I mean, we have to appreciate Timmy while we've got him because he's not going to be around for much longer, at least in this run. We're, I mean, we'll get him back for a little while later on, way down the road, but Timmy's not going to be with us for very much longer, so we need to appreciate him while we got him. Yeah, apparently a lot of people aren't going to be with us much longer, and I forget this, and then they go away, and I'm sad. <laughs> Comes at you fast. But a lot of them come back. But Patrick doesn't. I know. Well... We've moved, we're, we're in a post-Patrick world now. So we get that lovely Timmy directing traffic bit, and then we go over into Ross, Doug Ross, being good with the little girl who got chewed up by her hamster, and who we think is the mother. It says, oh, should we check her for rabies? Like, you know, she got bit pretty bad, and Doug's like, no, you know, the only way that he'd have rabies as if he was bit by a wild animal and based on his like um occupation i'm doubting that's going to have happened you know but your daughter should be by his lifestyle by his lifestyle thank you and um the mom is one of the women from sex in the city arguably the least remarkable woman from sex in the city like i she's like yeah i know her face and i thought i would know her from something else but looking at her imdb i was like i don't know you from anything other than sex in the city actually right but yeah, and so he's like, oh, you know, your daughter just needs to be more careful with him. And she goes, oh, no, my niece. This is my niece. I'm her aunt. Just totally coming on to Doug. Just like, it's a bit much. And she's like, oh, I've got Bulls tickets. Would you like to go to a game? You know, they're courtside. Just really laying it on thick. And I should mention, Mark is in the back of the room right now grabbing supplies while this is going on. And he just stops what he's doing and starts eavesdropping. And Doug is just like, no, I've got tickets of my own. Maybe I'll see you there. And Mark cannot contain himself. He, like, turns his head around, mouth agape, and just looks at Doug. Like, who are you? What have you done with my best friend? (laughs) And also, as always, Doug, what the fuck is that tie? Yeah, and Bulls tickets being a hot commodity in 1994 as the Bulls are in the middle of their dynasty run. Michael Jordan's the greatest basketball player of all time. Fight me. I don't think either of us will. I forget forget neither of you like sports. Come on. Oh, I like sports. I like sports plenty fine. I just don't have anything. Like, what argument am I going to... No, he's not. Like, what? (laughs) I don't know. I'm a Boston fan. Like, I didn't have a leg to stand on in 1994. Like, they sucked. And then after that, we have another we have another audio clip, our second of quite a few this episode. There's a lot of really good conversations this episode. It's a good character building episode. Exactly. So our next one is going to feature Carol and Lydia. Ooh, they're talking about Carol's engagement while they're cleaning up Ubaldo. 
fun times. Let's listen. Care for a drink? After you. So you get away for the weekend? Yeah. Tag and I rented a cottage in Door County right on the lake. Went ice fishing. That was a highlight. The one I can tell you about. Have you guys set a date yet? Why does everyone keep asking me that? I mean, what's the big rush? Sorry I asked. No, it's just I feel like I've finally gotten my life in order, and now it's all shaken up again. You having doubts? Well, it's a big step. I mean, it's natural to have some doubts, right? Maybe it's the forever part. You know, it's like infinity. It's hard to get a handle. Ah, what? Do you hear that, Taglieri? That's the sounds of the seeds being planted for your character to get swept away into the wind in favor of Doug and Carol forever. And specifically at the sound of the that sound of the end of clip that Carol makes uh, is her getting stuck with a needle that was just in this dude's boot. That's not a no little uh, pinprick either. It's like fully up to She's the syringe. Deep. Yeah. Yeah, it's like standing up in her hand, just Gugh. And then from right there, we go into the bangs. Um, and then after the intro, we have... These are just rapid fire in the beginning, folks, so please bear with us. Uh, but now we actually have Mark talking to Doug, specifically kind of giving him shit and really just being kind of a shithead. Yeah, like, this is kind of a sleazy Mark move. Yeah, talking to Doug about turning that woman down, so let's give that a listen. Bye-bye. That was more than an invitation to a basketball game. I know, I've been invited to basketball games. <sighs> yeah, so what? So I want an explanation. Mark grow up. Does this mean that you and Linda are that serious? Serious. Our longest phone conversation is get over here. Yeah, so then what happened in that? Hey, I've been summoned. Don't worry, it'll be fine. I'm just curious how you can turn down practically guaranteed sex with an undeniably attractive woman. If that's all there is, I'd rather play tennis. This is very disappointing coming from you. I mean, yeah, sex is great, but have you ever just been held by someone who cares about you? (laughs) Okay, Twitter. (laughs) I mean, this dynamic between Mark and Doug is, I think it's very real. Like, there's almost always this kind of dynamic, especially in guy friendships. There's almost always the one dude that's better at dating and relationships and, uh, in this case, hookups. Like, there's always one side that's a little bit better of it, and there's the other side where the grass the grass is always greener. You know, like you would always prefer to be the other friend. You know, so I think this is a very real depiction of that dynamic. Having been on both sides of that coin at various times in my life, yes, this is a very real conversation between the two of them. <laughs> Even if it's not the best uh, best look on, it's not really the best look on Mark. No, Mark is. Let's, let's call yeah, Mark is definitely better suited to be Mark than Doug. Yeah. But hey, you gotta, sometimes you gotta live vicariously through other folks. Live the life that you necessarily can't. And then we swing back over to Carol to check and see how she's doing after her accidental poke. Lydia and Wendy are keeping her company, and Lydia's helping disinfect the wound and everything and give her the prep drugs that she needs to help with prevention and do her testing and everything. And they're talking about, oh, how many sticks have you gotten? How many sticks have you gotten? And... Carol, this is the fifth time she has accidentally been stuck with a needle in the ER, we find out. Which I think this is where the episode title, Luck of the Draw, comes from, because they're talking about the odds of becoming infected, and we find out it's the odds, if a patient is infected, of Carol being infected by this needle is 1 out of 250. I don't know if those are, like, accurate or if they just threw them out for the sake of the show, but, um, and then... (laughs) 
They're talking specifically about HIV. HIV transmission potential. Yes. And sorry, I just take that for granted now that that's just such a common part of nomenclature. Yeah. That I forget that this would have been kind of big for them to be talking yeah. about in 95. Yeah, talking about talking about HIV on a major... Primetime. Tel- yeah, major primetime TV show this casually would not be, like... I mean, it wouldn't be, like, earth-shattering. Like, it would be, like, in the A's or something right. like that, but, like... It's still considered an extreme death sentence. Yeah, exactly. So, the fact that they're talking about it so casually is just kind of jarring. Exactly. At this part. And then, <laughs> blessed Wendy. She just goes, don't w- don't have unprotected sex until after the follow-up in six months just to be safe. And Carol's just like, thanks, Wendy. <laughs> like... <laughs> So from there we get our one of our first kind of long-term patients I guess for this episode uh we get Jorge who is a drug smuggler who is brought in by a customs agent and he has had condoms full of cocaine in his stomach for I think didn't they say like it had been like a week or so since they'd picked him up something like that 8 days or something yeah. Yeah, a week or 8 days or something like that it's ridiculous an extended period of time. Yeah, way longer than it should have been. So Jorge's not in, in a good way. Uh, Jorge also speaks exclusively Spanish, so Mark gets to try out some of his gringo Spanish. <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, he, he does all right. He holds his own. And the, the customs agent is very kind of, I think he's like half impressed and half sort of like incredulous about it. He's like, where did you learn Spanish? And Green is just very quickly, he's like, here. Which, you know, makes sense. Urban, downtown ER. Like, you're going to get a variety of populations coming through there. It makes sense that he would pick up a little bit of that. Um, Our two principals in this interaction, you've got Jorge, uh, the patient, who is played by a guy named Luis Ortiz, who has a very interesting filmography. He's got appearances in some movies like The Mask and Fight Club. Um, And then he's also kind of a Star Trek vet. He has been in Star Trek Enterprise, Hmm. Star Trek Voyager, and he was in Star Trek First Contact, the first uh, TNG, or Hmm. not the first TNG movie, but certainly the best TNG movie. Um, So he's got a really interesting, really interesting background. And the customs agent, whose name is Serena, again, I'm assuming that's a last name, I don't know. But the actor's name is Marco Rodriguez, um, and his two big credits that I was familiar with were The Crow and uh, Due Date, the uh, Robert Downey Jr. Zach Galifianakis attempt at remaking Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Oh, yeah. That was a movie that existed. It was. Yeah, it wasn't very good, but it, it, it's a thing that happened. I would watch it again, but I only saw it once. I saw it in so. the theaters, and I was just very like, it's Same. fine, whatever. I just love Robert Downey Jr., um, and then after that, we all, we go to Carter giving Deb uh, the ten cent tour, just sort of going speeding through, just like taking a, a page out of Benton's playbook and just blazing through. Here's this. Here's that. Here's this. Here's that. Oh, you can do this right. Oh, you can do that right. Sure. No. Oh. Well, we're gonna fix that. <laughs> like. It just, it kind of takes into focus that thing we were talking about a couple episodes ago where, well, this is how I learned and I turned out fine. Like, Carter's already becoming that Mm -hmm. institution. Yeah, Carter's definitely channeling some major Benton energy when he's doing this. Because he's like, oh, I get to pick on someone now. Yeah, he's like, wait, you don't know how to do an IV year? I thought you were supposed to be a third year. Like, come on, dude. Like, you didn't know how to do an IV and you were third year when you came in here. Is he still third year? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So Pro- like, probably like second semester, third year. Yeah. So like, dude, you're like barely, you're still in diapers. Like, 
You're not running exactly here. You're still crawling. But yeah, we learned that Deb has never done an IV and that she's going to get to learn how to do both a urinalysis and a rectal. And Carter says, it's your lucky day. It's no one's lucky day. No, God, no. And then we go into our first big trauma for the episode. Like, just true emergency patient. It's a small child in respiratory distress with a temperature of 104. Sounds like he might be in septic shock. Um, He crashes into VTAC. And I kept looking. I still can't see George Clooney's bullshit notes for these emergencies. I yeah. can't find him. Like, you could look... It looks like he's looking at something, but I didn't actually see what he was looking at. Like, he keeps, like, looking down, like, at, like... The gurney. Yeah, at the gurney or near, like, the kid's, like, legs or something like that. But, like, I couldn't see any specific notes. It, I am definitely on the lookout <laughs> for them now, though. Yeah. It, I, I always, He always does a good job of making it look like he's examining a part of the patient when he's doing it. Yeah. I think um, it stood out to me in this one because he's looking at a place like the sh- that, like by the shoulder. Yeah, he's or he's looking at a place that like is definitely not the focus of what he's trying to help for the kid. And if he made a if he made a habit out of it too, I'm assuming they got very good at making sure they framed it out, you know, so that it wouldn't right. show up on camera. Because it doesn't sound like it's a thing he did once or twice. It sounds like it's something he was pretty consistent about. So I'm sure they were like, okay, make sure we don't have. Clooney's notes sheet in the shot. We don't want to. We don't want a podcast talking about this twenty five years from now. But we gotta find the ER version of a Starbucks cup. No. Why would you say that? <laughs> but yeah, so this kid's gonna be really important for later in the episode. But right now, we just don't know what's wrong with him. Doug the White Knight is saddling up, and he doesn't even know it. But then after that, we get our. Now, fourth audio clip of the episode. Uh, again, I apologize. Um, Don't apologize for art. <laughs> okay, then. But now we actually have Morgan Stern and Susan's meeting. And, you know, we don't really get enough William H. Macy on in these audio clips. So, God damn it, we're going to listen to the whole thing. It's about a mi- It's just about a minute and a half long. So, let's give it a listen. I tried to convince Kaysen that this kind of finger pointing runs contrary to the spirit of a teaching hospital. Juice? No, thank you. He failed to see my point. He's bringing disciplinary charges against you. What does that mean exactly? You'll come before the committee next week, defend yourself, we'll make a determination, and steps will be taken accordingly. Dr. Morgan Stern, I want you to know that I tried to present Mr. Venerbeck's history. Dr. Kaysen cut me off and ordered him released. Susan, the specifics don't concern me nearly as much as your inability to assert yourself. Excuse me? You allowed Kaysen to intimidate you. Not the first time. I seem to recall a similar incident with Benton about a retrocecal appendix. I was right about that. But you deferred to Benton's judgment. That's my point. You seem to lack the authority to put forward your own opinions, to act as an aggressive advocate for your patients. I guess I have to work on that. Yes, you do. Confidence, composure under pressure, assertiveness. These are the requisite qualities of a good ER specialist. I'm willing to give you the chance to develop them. If you don't, we're going to have a future discussion about which specialty might best match your temperament. It's a tough thing to hear, but he's right. I mean, she does have to... that If she's going to stick in the ER, like she does have to assert herself more and 
be i mean and that's it's not necessarily only true of her i mean carter would be in the same boat very shortly like it's being an er doc means thinking fast thinking on your feet and you know you can't let yourself be railroaded by somebody else who's got a louder voice and especially when you bring in the gender dynamics into it yeah i was gonna say like she's our only real female doctor representation right now and to have her be the one that's getting railroaded and like steamed over it just it adds to it and also william h macy what are those suspenders <laughs> always with the fashion stuff between I you two gotta... 1995 was a weird time for us all they're like patterned <laughs> like i don't know if you noticed but they were like a tortoise shell pattern this is also like i think for my money i think this is probably the most valuable william h macy has been as a character since the show started like he's always a character that we see in passing so we never really get these long monologues from him like this um and it just seems like a waste of a character or, or a waste of an actor like william h macy and i'm struggling to really think of other times after this where he is more impactful or more kind of in that mentor role where he really like other than just being told he's the mentor you know because for the most part he's just kind of we just know he's the guy but we don't really know anything about him we don't really dig any deeper into it and he's just sort of there and he kind of drifts in and out so i think this is at least to this point this is the most kind of meaty uh interaction we've had with william h macy yeah and actually like when i was watching this i was actually thinking of like one of my like one of my more favorite Neela moments later on so Neela I think I don't even know if we've even mentioned her at this point later character but like she has a very similar interaction I think it's with Pratt that wouldn't surprise me yeah but like where Pratt is telling her to be assertive are you really cut out for the ER this sort of like the this whole the whole vibe of this conversation they have that in like season like 14 or 13 or something like that Mm. And all I can think of is just how poorly it goes for Neela because she asserts herself and then she fucks up and kills someone. It'll be interesting to see as we go along, too. It'll be interesting to see how many of plot threads like that get recycled because, you know, we got 15 seasons to go through this. Like it's bound and with so much cast turnover, it's bound to happen that we're going to get stuff that happens to one character that they'll dress up the set a little bit different and then whip it on a different character a little bit later on down the road. It'll be interesting to keep an eye out for those. So from there, we jump back over to our mystery trauma kid. Lydia is uh, one of the nurses in the room and is wearing a weird sweater vest that I don't really know what to make of. Definitely weird nurse attire. (laughs) And I've noticed she like wears these a lot. I don't know why this one stuck out to me the most, but it's just like this awful olive green over her pink scrubs. Yeah, it clashes quite a bit. Guess she was Not just always Lydia. just always cold, I guess. But um, so the little boy's potassium is too high, and uh, Doug surmises that that's probably from renal failure. And we've I don't know if we've mentioned to this point, but the father of the boy is in the room, and he's just kind of standing there, just like staring, looking very like a mixture of concerned and angry like just he's he's a weird vibe he gives off a very weird vibe um he almost looks disappointed that the kid's gonna pull through so we don't really know where that's coming from yet the guy who plays the dad who's the the character's name is mr gaither um he was a super like immediate oh hey it's that guy for me and i think for probably a lot of people of my same age group i feel like he will be uh that 
he's got a couple bit parts in movies like Sergeant Bilko and Con Air, but the thing that I knew him from almost instantly was as the dad from Smart Guy, the uh, Taj Maori, the not the Maori twins, sister sister girls, but their little brother. He had his own show on Disney Channel in the late '90s, and this guy was the dad on that show and was a pretty good tv dad as tv dads go he was uh i remember him being definitely like a tier tv dad i have never heard of that last thing until yeah i've never heard of smart guy until just now i didn't watch it but i knew about it it was a pretty good show i mean it was you know it was kind of your standard at disney afternoon pappy shit but you know it was it's better than growing pains fuck that you know Again, I've never seen a single episode of Growing Growing. Pains. You are not missing much, let me tell you. I'm not surprised by that at all. I was much more of a Nickelodeon and Fox Afternoon kid versus any Disney Channel stuff. And then we have a quick shot over to Mark and Carol talking, and Mark is the second person this episode to ask if Carol has set a date yet. And Carol again is like, why does everybody keep asking me that? No, I haven't set a date. Like... You can tell she's real uncomfortable about this engagement right now. I mean, to be fair, we get asked a lot about ours. I mean, at least I get asked a lot about mine. I do too. It's more from people who don't know us as well. That's true. The people close to us know that we'll just let them know when it's going to happen. Exactly. But We've been engaged for about three years now. Yeah. Miss Lauren and I, the co-host. Yeah. So we'll get there when we get there. Thanks for the pat on the back, friend. <laughs> Just two. You're ga- welcome, pal. Two gals being pals. Uh, God damn it! And after that, we get a uh, Carol has her patient for the episode. Who I love. A young, uh, say a gentleman named Alan comes from a group home. I believe it's called the Marymount Home for the Emotionally Disabled. We never get like a clear like definition or like saying like exactly what's wrong with him i think they say like he's just like emotionally immature or something like that i think it's more like he because as you see in the episode he he has a very particular way of interacting with people yeah so i think it's more he's neurodivergent to the point where it impedes him having a normal life yeah i was like i was like i was getting some pretty major autistic vibes from it but like I but they never explicitly say so I don't want to put that so I don't want to necessarily impose that. It, it's on... very broad strokes. It's it's network yeah. TV. I would just say he's neurodivergent. Yeah. So yeah, he's been having breathing troubles and he pulls out this. He's holding this big old binder. Uh, he says it's his medical binder. He's been keeping it since he was fourteen. Uh, we don't get a specific age on him, do we? I don't think no, so. But it, he looks like he's probably early mid twenties. Yeah, maybe early thirties, something like that. So, you know, not a teenager anymore is what we're saying. Binder is very much color coded as well as his outfit. He has all the different colors on for different sections, like a different color for me, uh, for meds, one for medical records, and et cetera, et cetera. And Carol points out that his outfit is blue and he just says very matter of fact say, well of course it's wednesday as if she would know what that mean but hey good for him and then they bring him to one of the trauma rooms because that's every other exam room is completely full and he can't go into the one because it's green so he's very color obsessed and he says green is very bad so thankfully there's another open one a yellow one so you know, that we'll pick up with him in, in a little bit 
And just real quick on Alan, uh, he's played by a guy named Neil Giuntoli, who's most famous for roles in Child's Play, uh, Waterworld, and Shawshank Redemption. Um, I meant to look up who exactly he is in Shawshank, because I feel like he has a very, like, memorable face, or, like, not a memorable face, but a very familiar face, Um, but I couldn't quite place who he is in uh, any of these movies, so I wanted to go back and watch Shawshank again, see if I could point him out but those are his big three i mean i thought that he was the rat fink accountant in the dark knight that tries to out uh, bruce wayne <laughs> so i was wrong oh yeah i think the age ranges there would be pretty off like this guy i i looked up uh what he looks like now and you he would not be recognizable as alan today gotcha all right, well, then we go back over to the little boy who was having problems earlier, and we find out that he has a bad case of pneumonia, and his name is Ben, by the way. And his dad says, oh, well, the last time the doctor said to put him on a ventilator, and dad comes in, sets up his room, puts a metronome out for him, and starts it, and he goes, oh, before the accident, he was learning trumpet. And then he sets out a picture of, or there's a picture sitting out of Ben like probably a couple years ago in a baseball uniform and the dad says oh the kid had a hell of a bat and he seems really upset about the life his son could have had because it turns out that a few years before his kid was like running and was going to pick something up from the middle of the street and an 85 year old in a car you know like waved him like oh go ahead I'll stop but then confused the brake for the accelerator and slammed into him and then the dad is like oh you know do you understand? Do you have any kids? And Dr. Ross is like, yeah, I have an eight-year-old son who we never, <laughs> like who we've just been hearing more and more about in passing. And but... we will never explore this further. Well, he mentions him again later. Yeah, he, me- he mentions too. it, but I just mean it in the show in general. Like that's not a, you would, a, a different show I think would have, or I think even if they were to do this show over again, I think that's a plot thread that they would have spent a little bit more time on. And it's one of these things that like, it's been mentioned in one other episode. It's mentioned here and I don't think it ever gets mentioned again. Like, it's kind of a, a character trait that they sort of just drop, you know, with Doug, so. Right. Like, it serves purpose to show that uh, he's kind of a, he's kind of an asshole, but, like, he's not as perfect as he seems. And then we go into a sequence I really don't like. I have a lot of beef with this next one. Ooh, yeah. No, this one's really rough. So, Carter and Deb go to check on Jorge, and Carter's like, all right, you know, we're going to we're going to do a rectal. Like, you're going to feel around for any masses or anything unusual and like and any just look around, feel around. And Deb's like, I don't have anything to compare it to. How will I know what feels strange? And he goes, well, here's a good chance to learn. Like, you'll, uh... like, you'll know what will feel strange after this. Good luck. Yeah, about that. Shuts the curtain and like you just hear a little little discomfort um and you hear deb like uh he seems a little tense and you hear jorge kind of making noises of complaint and carter just says oh show him who's boss and then we get further screaming in spanish from jorge and carter's like deb are you okay then you hear her go i'm stuck she didn't use lubricant so what they're depicting is this awful just awful medical care and it's almost like the only reason it's even remotely a punchline is because this dude's hispanic 
No, I would say more. Well, yeah, that, and also because huh, he's a criminal, right. and no one cares yeah. about criminal. Yeah, it's it's played for laughs because oh, he's, who cares if he gets hurt? He's a criminal and a drug dealer at that. So who cares? Like, well, that and like you have him screaming in the background like "Ios mios." Yeah, and like Just doing I like repeatedly and played louder. for laughs. Yeah, I mean it's not the first time they've gone to this well either. I mean we had Lewis a couple episodes ago sticking a sunflower up a guy's ass because he was rude to her. Like you know they they've done the rectal thermometer joke as punishment thing in the past. So I'm not a fan. No, I'm not either. It, it definitely doesn't pass the 2019 smell test, but it's certainly not the first time they've gone. Poor down choice this of road. words. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> Sorry. God damn it, Lauren. The woke factor. And then we jump back over to Alan. We learn that he has, in fact, had this cough for a while. And Susan is, you know, checking him over and is like, oh, you know, what color? Do you spit anything up when you cough? What color is it? And he goes into this long-winded description to essentially say it's yellow snot (laughs) that comes up when he coughs. It's yellow phlegm. So. I mean, to be fair, man knows his colors really well. Yeah, he gets really into it. And it's it's almost poetic how well he describes the snot and phlegm that he's coughing up. And then we see Benton scrubbing in with Morgan Stern for one of their surgeries. And I can't remember what Benton says to spark this, but Morgan Stern says, that's what I like about you. Naked ambition tempered by arrogance, which is just a great (laughs) template of their working relationship is that Morgan Stern's like, yeah, you're a cocky asshole, but you know what you're doing? Fine. But then Benton gets called away because he has received a call from Walt about his mom getting loose. And so he has to scrub out and go help Walt find their mom. Which we will come back to in a little bit. Uh, But after that, so Susan has had her her meeting and she's going about her day and she notices something's a little fishy. You know, she's noticing people are trying to correct her and Mark is co-signing her charts and let's let's listen to them have a little chat about that. Where's Green? Exam room four. Uh, there must be at least a hundred of them in there. Are they moving along? Not really. Well, how long is this going to take? Well, you're going to have to ask Jorge that. Why are you co-signing all my charts? Excuse me. Every chart I worked on today has your signature on it. Why? Morgan Stern told me to. You think I'm incompetent? You think you need to oversee every decision I make? No, of course not. Did you tell Morgan Stern that? Well, he didn't ask my opinion. He just told me to do it. Why didn't you stand up for me? You seem to forget that a patient died, Susan. Your patient. I know it could have happened to any one of us, but it happened to you. And now there's a lawsuit and an inquiry. And because I'm chief resident, it becomes my problem, too. So if Morgan Stern wants me to co-sign your charts, I'm going to do it. You knew what he was going to say to me today, didn't you? Yes. You talked about me. I have conversations with Morgan Stern about every resident down What'd here. What'd you say? I told him that Kaysen gives you a hard time. And? And the way he rides you, it's no wonder this happened. And? And when you go head-to-head with strong-willed guys like Benton and Kaysen, you tend to back down. Okay, before we talk about Mark and Susan and that over a hundred condoms. Yeah, what the fuck? Holy shit. That doesn't seem that doesn't seem medically possible. I mean, not if you're a quitter. 
It's like, yeah, I can't fit a hundred condoms worth of cocaine in, in my be- in my belly and gut. Yeah, now with that attitude. Mm. Yeah, that's bad news for Jorge. But on the other side of that, just I don't I don't know how I feel about either side of this. Because on one side, Mark probably should have been pulling for Susan a little bit more, giving her a little bit more credit. And when he's talking to Morgan Stern about her. But, you know, if Mark's right, Mark's right. If he sees what Morgan Stern is seeing, then can't really do much about it. He's in a tough spot. He's in an impossible spot, actually. Like Exactly. He's still a resident, chief resident, though he may be. He's still a resident, and, you know, it's he's got a career to think about as well. And, you know, he if Morgan Stern asks for his honest opinion or his honest assessment and in his role as chief resident, he has to give that. And, you know, it might be detrimental to his personal relationship with Susan, but he's still, you know, it would be it would be dishonest and it would be unprofessional of him to lie on her behalf or, or, or diminish what his honest feelings are just because they're friends. So, you know, in a way he's doing the right thing, but she's got every right to be mad too. So it's kind of, it's an impossible situation for green. Lauren, any thoughts on it? No, it's, it's a rock and a hard place. Like I think it's best that he's honest with Morgan Stern because otherwise, you know, Susan runs the peril of not growing and not having these hard conversations like, it was going to come up eventually. If not in her residency, it would have come up down the road when she's trying to get hired somewhere. And they're like, okay, well, how have you advocated for yourself? I haven't. People always talked over me. Well, that can't happen. Bye. Like, she's going to have to have these conversations at some point. Yeah, maybe not explicitly like that. But, but like, you know it, what it I would, mean. Like, it would come up in, like, peer reviews or something right. like that. Probably. That was just my blanket way of describing it. I like, get you, I get you, I get you. She's going to have to do the hard practice at some point, and this way she at least has Morgan Stern and Mark aware of the situation, so when she does start, for lack of a better term, picking fights with Kaysen, they know it's because she's trying to advocate for herself. So it kind of it kind of helps her in the long run. It sucks for Susan right now, but I think it's going to help her become a stronger doctor. And then we pop back over to check on Ben, our respiratory patient, with the pneumonia, and Doug is there when he wakes up. Doug's nice enough to turn the metronome back on to help him be soothed, and um, Wendy comes in and hands Doug something, and is like, oh, I thought you would need to see this. It's about Ben, and it's a DNR submitted by his father, and that's a do not resuscitate. If he is to go into cardiac arrest and failure or any other type of death, they are not to resuscitate him. Yeah, they are n- not to try and bring him back. No heroic measures or life-saving drugs are to be administered. At that point. So, time for White Knight Doug again to get suited up. Okay, I will admit it's not as bad as no. we're sort of making it out to be. But no. still, it's it's within Doug's character. Yes. This Yeah, it's a crusade that he would definitely take on. But of all the, ones we, all the times we've seen him go into White Knight mode to this point, this is, I think, the most defensible. Mm-hmm. But overall, I actually find overall this is a very interesting storyline. Like this is a very like compelling and honest and real storyline. So I'm very excited to see where this goes. I'm you know as we get close to the end of the episode. But uh, but before we get there, um, we get another new patient coming in who is probably like 
my least favorite episode or least favorite character uh in the whole episode mr desmond uh who is a sociologist we find out from the university of chicago who's studying uh violence and he does this he achieves this research by going around and asking people insulting questions and seeing how long it takes them to hit him and i forget what the question was he had asked the guy who hit him that got him packed into the ambulance and taken to the er but uh he comes in and he's got this like big black eye and like he's just very he's I, I, I'm finding a hard way to like put into words what is annoying about him, but he has that like way of matter of factly stating what it is he's doing as if it excuses it, you know, like it's like, yes, you know, yeah, well, I'm studying violent behavior and research, whatever. Okay. But you're still being a fucking prick. Like, do you ever, did you ever occur to you that maybe this is not something worth researching, but you know, I digress. I mean, it's not like he doesn't have instant karma almost every single time he does this. I mean, he does. Yeah, he does. It's just like, I don't know, like he has that sort of like quasi libertarian, like I'm just asking questions, bro, thing about him. It's just like, I don't know. I'm very, I I think I'm just tired of that type of personality in 2019, but. That's fair. I don't know. I found it kind of entertaining, but I could see where, see where you would get that. Yeah, I mean, the the actor who plays him is very dynamic and does a good job, don't get me wrong. The guy's name is John Doolittle. Um, his most interesting credit besides this, which I thought was really interesting, was that he was a, one of the writers of a Goofy movie, the uh, standalone Goofy movie, <laughs> like <laughs> Disney's Goofy. Like, wow, I was, not, I was not expecting that when I pulled up his IMDb, but... Uh, and he tells Green as he's being wheeled in that his insurance company charges him the same premium as NASCAR drivers. Cool, man. Cool. You're that much of an asshole. And then we revisit Doug, and he's approached Ben's dad about the DNR and the prognosis and everything, and that Ben could die. And his dad's just like, well, when? And Doug just says, you know, with the right treatment, he could live a long time. Are you sure you want to give that up? And the dad just takes his coat and leaves. Doesn't answer the question, he just leaves. Clearly this is a man really struggling with something here. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. We we come back to Ben's dad a little bit more, but I would just like it known that I am solidly on the dad's side in this one. And we'll find out, you know, just the true depth of what's going on what's been going on later on with that. Uh, but for now, we catch up with Walt and Peter. They are in Lincoln Park near the Armitage Brown line looking for looking for Mama Benton. She has wandered off. Uh, so we have some lovely Ving Rhames audio for you. Yay! So. I can't believe Mrs. Lukey. That woman shouldn't have taken my money if she was too senile to do the job. Myers' kid saw someone. It could have been your mom down here at the corner. I can't believe she waited two hours to call us. She didn't call us. She called me. I mean, she made me look like an idiot running out of service. Look, look, Peter. I left a station full of cars that need service. All of this because you insisted on hiring some old woman to take care of your mom instead of putting her in a home. She's not going in a home. Oh, like hell she isn't. Well, don't go telling me what to do. Look, I'm telling you, man. I'm not letting you put me and your sister through this anymore. Now, I'm sorry if it makes you feel sad, but there's no other choice. She's my mother, so who are you to tell me how to handle her? I'm the man who's paid for food, her clothes, and her care for the last six years. Oh, and, uh, and she let you live in a house? Yo, who pays the damn mortgage? 
Who pays the bills? Uh -huh. You don't get anything out of it? Huh? How many high school students, dropouts, do you know, have a $100,000 business just dropped in their lap? High school dropout. I cared for your family for six years. I carried your family for six years. I'm responsible for your mother, your sister, the house, and the station. The only one that Peter is responsible for is Peter. I'm gonna look by the firehouse. Oof. Speak some truth there, Walt. I like that they're highlighting the family difficulties about making decisions like this, but I also like that Walt's just straight up calling Peter out on his bullshit. Yeah, no, I'm solidly coming down on Walt's side in this one. Like, like I get that it's Peter's mom, but when you've been doing all the taking care of someone like that for six years now, and they're, you know, however far, whatever scale you want to use to say how far gone Mama Benton is, like, she's not really there too much anymore. Like, that's, having grown up, you know, in my teenage years, living with someone with getting progressively worse and worse Alzheimer's and having to, and being one of her primary caretakers, it just wears on you so goddamn much. And I cannot fault Walt at all for just wanting to just be done. It kind of, it mirrors the storyline with Ben's dad, you know, quite a bit. Like the, the whole episode, I feel like has something very interesting and very profound to say about caregiver fatigue. It's a very real emotion and it's and it's a very valid one too like it's I think there's a lot of guilt associated with it and you see it in Ben's dad and you know you also see it here with Peter as well like he's he feels guilty about putting her in a home as her son but you know he's not seeing the other side of the, the equation here where this is taking a very real toll on Walt and his sister in not only you know financially and with their marriage and everything like it's causing very real collateral damage you know and it's something that you don't always think about truth so after that we've jumped back over we've got a quick little interaction between the sociology boy mr desmond and this time he's with carol and he decides to stretch his legs with her on his uh how quickly can he incite her to violence thing with uh commenting on her ring and how ostentatious it is uh, today is not the day to do that, my friend, because it only takes 21 seconds before <laughs> she pops him real good. Damn. And somebody made a good point. I was reading, I was doing some reading uh, on the background of this episode from like stuff at the time. Um, somebody makes a good point, like especially in this episode, because she's already, she's already gotten the needle stick in this episode. Um, you would think that, and I didn't go back to pay attention to see if it's visible or not, but you would think that she'd be wearing gloves in this scene so he wouldn't even be able to see her ring. And you'd think she'd be like extra careful because she already got stuck once earlier in this episode. Uh, so it might be a little plot hole there. I'm not sure. Continuity error. Oh, well. But yeah, 21 seconds. That seems kind of fast. She has had a day. Yes. Yes, she has. Uh, speaking of people having a day, uh, one of Jorge's condoms has popped. Oh boy! Uh, so they're going into he's crashing because you know that you know that much concentrated cocaine being released into your system at once is not not going to be a good thing for you. And Deb is playing around with the crash cart before Jorge takes a turn for the worse, and so she's fussing around with it and 
Green's in the room, and he's like, you know, shock him. Like, Deb accidentally shocks Carter instead. Like, <laughs> gets him square in the chest with 200 volts of lovely electricity, and then Carter falls down, hits his head, and is just out cold. And Green just looks over and is like, yeah, he'll be fine. Just just some head trauma. He'll, he'll be fine. Then they have Hole, like, checking on him on the floor, and like, he'll be okay. And then we check on Susan, who is reviewing Alan's x-rays, his chest x-rays, and his previous chest x-rays, and she takes them into him, and Carol says, when you came in this morning, you didn't tell me you had cancer. And Alan just keeps focusing on the color of the room he's in, keeps talking about that, refusing to acknowledge what they're saying, and finally, after a few more attempts to get through to him... Alan just simply asks, can I be alone, please? Like, he just needs to sit and think about it for a minute. And my heart just broke watching this. Like, oh, precious, precious baby. It's one of those times when you just sort of want to reach through through your TV and just give a character a hug. Because he just looks lost. After that, we find Mama Benton. Yay! Uh, Except she's now, except she's downtown near what is now uh maggie daly park uh was not always known as that i forget uh, what it was known i think it might have just been part of grant park before but they sort of divvied off the north part of uh grant park into a couple into millennium park which has which features the bean that everyone knows and loves for some reason and cloud gate <sighs> shut the fuck up you are not going to be a Anish Kapoor apologist on this podcast, are you? Daniel, did you go to the Bean when you came down to Chicago? I did. It was lovely, although it was very rainy that day, so it was, you know, diminished the effects a little bit, but it was fine. Yeah, so very, very far south. Um, probably about, let's eh, say probably about 25, 30 blocks south of where they were just a few minutes ago. You know, gotta love our Chicago continuity errors. <laughs> yep. Well, I'm wondering if maybe... Benton was up meeting Walt, and then they were heading downtown to find her. Like, that's the only thing I can think of. It's just two very different spots in the city. Well, and like, it's like, why would Benton go all the way up to Walt and then go back downtown? Exactly. Like, you'd, I feel like you would, especially with how tucked away that area is that she's in, like, you specifically have to know she's there. Right. Where she's by the skating kids. Yeah, which, I mean, you know, as they're talking... She does say that there was some connection there. There, like I think she used to take uh, Jackie to skating yeah, lessons. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, it's not like the wor- It's not like the weirdest place to find her. It's not like she's just on some random like water treatment plant on the south side or something like that. You know, <laughs> there is some logic there. But still, I'm me and I'm picky about my Chicago geography, and we see. Lauren's work building in the background. We won't. <laughs> we won't say which because uh, safety. Yeah. But. But always fun to see it there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, Benton and Mama Benton, they're just having a nice conversation, and you know she's mostly there actually for the most part. She's pretty lucid, and when she's takes her a couple tries to get going, but once she gets going and actually like you know knows what's going on. You know, her and Benton are actually having a very honest conversation, and Ben brings up putting her into a nursing home. You know, he he doesn't he specifically goes out of his way to avoid saying nursing home. He says, "We think you'd be happier at a place where there were people your age and people who could take care of you." 
it's a nursing home. Excuse the knife in my heart. Exactly. And just with, like, the most gut-wrenching, like, plea, like, Mama Benton is just like, I don't want to go to a nursing home. Because she realizes Benton's father is dead. Yeah. And, like, she's like, I don't have anybody anymore. So then from there, we jump over. We're going to check back in with Susan. uh, And we do that via this young girl who gets brought in with a gunshot wound to the chest. Drive-by shooting. She was an innocent bystander. This was a gang shooting. Brother's a gangbanger. They need to do a chest tube. And they also, she's got a uh, bleeding artery in her chest. So they need to cut her chest open and stop the bleeding and so susan is very eager to prove herself so every time these procedures keep being mentioned like we need to do a chest tube we need to crack her chest open susan's very eager to be like i'll do it i'll do it you know and you can see mark is sort of you know questioning it but he's like okay you need you need to do this you know you need to assert yourself this is what this is what we've been telling you you need to do so but what she doesn't plan on is case and walking in the room and Kaysen, God damn it. Yeah. He shows up and seems to take great joy in torturing her, like, with his presence. Like, like it's it's one of those things, like, you know, he... Green and Morgenstern are, are right in the sense that she does need to assert herself, but they're doing it in her best... They're, they're saying these things and they are telling her these things in her best interests. You know, they want her to grow as a doctor and as a person. Kaysen, on the other hand, seems to take some sort of cruel joy in it. Like, it is, it's a game for him. It's not about making her a better doctor or making her a better person. It's about the feeling he gets out of making her uncomfortable. It's a power thing. And that's what's so gross about him. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just a pure power play from his point of view, I'm pretty sure. Like, it's like, oh, this little girl thinks she can come in and try to make me look bad i'll show her right like, you know it's an ex- not like explicitly spelled out like that and then in such sinister terms but but it, i mean it, but it is there though because i mean it's an, it's an extension of the interaction we saw at the beginning of the episode where he made a point of acknowledging green and ignoring her he does the same thing here where he you know he's like he's he keeps looking to green where you know instead of telling her your cut's not deep enough or it coaching her or teaching her you know god forbid he's just like talking to green saying like she can't do it how long are you gonna let this go you know so it's she's obviously uh you know thrown off her game by the fact that he's there um she can't she's grabbing the wrong equipment like she's just fucking up left and right and so eventually she she removes herself from this situation, steps back. Mark gets in there and stops the bleeding. And again, in another extension of that first interaction from the beginning of the episode, Kaysen says to Green, you know, good job, Dr. Green, and then leaves. Says nothing to her and just, it's like, he's he's definitely filled the div void quite well of just like loathsome older doctor. Yeah, but at least with div, you had some redeeming qualities. There's just, so far we've seen none from... He's an asshole. Yeah, we've seen none from Kaysen, so... And, you know, we really don't for a while. Wait, wait, we all. do it? I was like, we do it all? Yeah. I mean, he has his humble, he has his humbling moment okay, later. that's true. But that doesn't last long, though. But then after that, we have Doug, uh, sort of just, he's fussing over Ben, he's gonna take Ben up to ICU, and, you know, is it, it's, is it Wendy that's with him? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Wendy's with him, and 
you know, she says, because she, she overheard him talking with the dad, and she's like, I didn't know you had a son, and Doug's like, you know, we're not exactly close, and she was like, oh, what's his name? And Doug just very nonchalantly says, I don't know, I've never met him. Like, what? what? Doug, what? What? I have so many questions. <sighs> and then Carol is in the bathroom, and washing her hands real quick, and all of a sudden she sees Susan come out of a stall crying. So clearly this is getting to Susan. She feels like shit. Things are shit. She's having a fucking shitty day. Yeah, Morgan Stern is still on his damn piano room nonsense, whatever, because uh, Benton gets back to the OR. Just missed it in terms of actually getting in on time before someone else needed to fill in for him. So, and the guy who fills in for him, I forget his name off the top of my head, but Morgan Stern asked him about the, the about that piano showroom that they were talking about a couple episodes ago when... <laughs> Carter when Carter went in for his first his first trip to the OR except this dude is like oh yeah I've been in there he's then Borges was like wait you've been in there we got my wife's harpsichord there two years ago yeah like oh they have a Steinbrenner they have a Stein something Stein we forgot to write Steinway Stein Steinway I was gonna say Steinbrenner but that was like that's that's a Yankees dude isn't it (laughs) yeah it is (laughs) can you tell that none of the three of us have any money yeah Speak for yourself. We have an amazing Casper adjustable. <laughs> Thank you very much, Daniel. You, Casper, hit us up. The, the piano the budget went products. into the mattress. Yes, because we clearly have room for a piano in our tiny one-bedroom Chicago urban apartment. It's not tiny. It's cozy. New York apartments are tiny. Okay, It's cozy. Enough. This is cozy. Sure. Anyway... After that, we have uh, Ben's dad is back from his job interview to check on him, and... We get Doug and him just having having a very real conversation. So, you know, it's about two minutes long, so please bear with us, but it's really good. So let's give it a listen. Where is he? We took Ben up to intensive care. Intensive care. They're aware of your decision. You okay? Yeah. I just got offered a job managing a recycling plant in Detroit. I gotta pick up and move. Coming back, I just couldn't help thinking how much easier it would be if Ben were dead. What kind of a man thinks like that? What kind of a father prays for his own boy to die? For two years, it's been just me and Ben. No work, no friends, nobody. He needs me 24 hours a day to turn him and feed him, sing to him when he cries. I love my boy. I've given Ben two years. Two years. I just can't give anymore. I need for this to end. 
So there's a lot there. That's caregiver fatigue. And a very, very relatable emotion. And just, just, wow. Just, this is my favorite bit of the episode. Because they go there. They yeah. don't hold back. Exactly. Like, when my father was sick, he battled Alzheimer's for 10 years. And it got to the point where he was nowhere near the man he was before he got sick. And... Like, even though he was safe and well cared for at a home, we were still just like, he's clearly suffering. He's clearly uncomfortable. He's clearly not living the life he would want to live or that we wanted him to live. And it wears on you emotionally. Yeah. To be like, this is not the person I loved, be it from dementia, Alzheimer's, or an accident that's taken away what you wanted for them. And it's just like, what do you do when there's that dissonance emotionally? How do you take the love that you have for someone and that wanting what's best for them and match it against your own personal want for comfort and for the suffering to be over without feeling like a terrible person? And you don't. That's very well said. Thanks, Bruce. And a complete tonal shift. We, I was, I was just giving That's, it some room. That to, is all you. I was I, giving it room to breathe for a second. I do not want to talk about this. So okay, we you. have we have some light hazing, some revenge on Carter here. Ugh. So we we go into a room and we zoom into the feet of a gurney, and then up the gurney to a pair of incredibly hairy legs. And all the way up to Carter in a gown, hooked up to an oxygen tube. And, um, yeah, they put him in a gown, put oxygen on him. And um, Deb and Hale come in. And they're like, oh, I noticed this while I was examining you. And I noticed this. And, you know, your rectal went incredibly smoothly. And just, like, all this stuff. And Carter's like, you gave me a rectal? And then goes on to, and then Halei's looking over the chart and is like, oh, by the way, Deb, you don't write average male genitalia, you write normal male genitalia. (laughs) And Carter snatches the thing away and is like, what? You looked at, what? And he's looking and then he realizes that they're totally fucking with him and she didn't actually, like, give him an exam at all. And Deb, er, and Halei's just like, told you we'd get him. Ha ha ha. Ugh. Just like, haha, we looked at your junk. Just kidding. No, we didn't. But don't you feel uncomfortable now? Haha. Like, then... what if what if that was a female doctor that they had made that joke about? We, would, we wouldn't be laughing. Yeah, exactly. Like, can you imagine, like, if those roles were reversed? And if it was a male student? You like know, Joking, like, haha, I stuck a finger up your ass and looked at your vagina. Like, that's, this is the equivalent. Okay, not quite as, as much of a power shift. But this is the equivalent of, like, Carter pranking Susan. In a way. You, but you know what I mean? Like, if we're talking yeah. about that student pranking teacher or pranking higher up. So, looking at it with our woke 2019 eyes, not a cool prank to pull. I'll still laugh at it because I'm childish, but <laughs> let's strive to be better. And this show does get better over the years. So, but we're still firm A lot of people will disagree with you on that. 
I'm talking in terms of like social wokeness. Oh, wokeness. Again, yeah. people will disagree that that affects the quality of the show. I mean, <laughs> I think the show gets better as we go along, but that's a conversation for when we get into seasons like five and six and stuff. And bonus and episodes. Exactly. Patreon.com slash the Tone Podcast. Quick pop over to check on our least favorite sociology professor, Mr. Desmond, and he has company in his room. A boxer is being wheeled in, complaining about having just lost his fight and clearly not in a good mood at all. And he gets parked next to Mr. Desmond and Carol's like, oh, I brought you some company. And you see, um, like, oh, this can only end well. And you see Mr. Desmond lift his watch up and turn the timer on and go, can I ask you two questions? So he's about to be dead. I enjoy the storyline. Yeah, I, think I, I like it. It's childish and it's fine. Exactly. But I understand where you're coming from, Daniel. I mean, I do feel like I will say this would have, like, I, th- I feel like you could have done the previous scene differently or not a, not played it for laughs. You know, just had an honest conversation right. between Deb and Carter and done this as the comic relief. And I feel like it would have worked just as well, you know, if not better. So just armchair quarterbacking there, but it, I think it could have been done differently. But uh, and this character, the boxer character is uh, Mr. Parnell. Uh, he's played by a guy named Sam Scarber, who has a pretty fun filmography, the highlights of which include Eraser, uh, the Schwarzenegger uh, movie from, I think, a little bit later in the 90s uh, after this. And then also Over the Top, the Sylvester Stallone arm wrestling movie. So that is a thing that <laughs> happened because the 80s and cocaine. Nice. So much cocaine in this episode. From there, we go back over to Susan and Mark having a chat in a room I don't recognize. I'm not sure if it's just a weird angle of the doctor's lounge I, I or if it's a different nurse's station. Yeah, I think it's just an odd angle we don't usually see of the, the lounge. The doctor's lounge. Yeah, but it's Mark is apologizing to Susan about not telling her about the meeting with Morgan Stern. And the tension in their friendship here is so good. Like, they play it so well as friends who are upset with each other. Or, like, that, that Mark is trying so hard to make it up to her. And he's just like, hey, you know, after work, we're all going over to Doc Magoo's. You should come with us. You've had a shitty day. Come get some crappy diner food. So, he's trying. Susan's pissed and having none of it, but he's trying. Yeah. But at least Alan is having some of it. Because he's actually stepped into the green trauma room. Yay! He has left his medical binder on the gurney. Uh, Carol comes in and is very like, oh no, where did he go? And he's just standing there, just firmly in the doorway while it seems like they're cleaning it up or you know, restocking it or whatever. Just just standing there, absorbing the room, so to speak. You know, And then talks to Carol about how he's... Uh, one of his friends from the home wants wants them to get an apartment together. But he had always been, but he had been very hesitant before because of the green tiled bathroom floor. And, you know, the guy was like, oh, no, we can get it retiled. It's fine. But then we learn that there's a section missing from his binder all about Alan's cancer diagnosis. And that section is colored green. So it all comes together. So sad. I know. And then we suddenly get a zoom out to the hallway where we hear a loud punch and Mr. Desmond goes flying out of his room, slams (laughs) into the other wall. And I think it's Mark 
everybody's getting ready to go. They all have their jackets on. And Mark says, Lydia, someone should probably go check on Mr. Desmond. Like, doesn't give a single fuck. He's just, yeah, somebody should probably go look at him. Yeah. Uh, And then we get a grand gathering of most of the cast, it seems like, uh, over at Doc Magoo's. And pulled the audio from it. Again, it's another about two minute long one. There's just, it's, there's just a lot going on here. Just a lot of different weaving interactions. And it's just a lot of all of them being silly and fun together. And we get some news about Carol. um, And we get some actual, some not awfulness from Doug. So, hey, let's go go with that. What? No. No. Cow fighting. (laughs) I don't care. I'm Set a wedding date and get HIV on the same day. You got yogurt? A bran muffin? <laughs> okay, hey, everybody, I want to propose a toast to Carol. May your upcoming marriage bring you laughter and happiness and kids and most of all love. God knows you deserve all of those things. Here, here. All right. Benton is such a nerd. <laughs> this fucking Your muffin fruit plate brand muffin. <laughs> I love it. And the the visual there is the dude behind the count. He's sitting at the counter, and the cook and behind the counter is just shaking his head no, like and idiot. looking at yeah, looking at him like like he's a fucking idiot or something. <laughs> like of course not. Why would the fuck would we have a brand muffin? Like, this is Doc Magoo's. Sir, this is a diner. Wendy. Sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's it's a great end of the episode. Oh, we're not done with the episode. We then switch over to Carol. Or not Carol. We then switch over to Susan looking from her shitty little blue VW bug. Beetle. Bug? Beetle? Interchangeable? Interchangeable. Sure. Anyway, looking out of her car into the windows of the diner. It's raining and she's sad and she's watching everyone have fun. And she drives off. It has everything but the Charlie Brown music. Like, just... <laughs> exactly. That's that's what I was. Th- wah, I, was wah, 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 I was definitely wah, wah. picking up Charlie Brown. Can vibes. we talk for one quick second too about the looks on everyone's face right as Doug says he wants to give a toast? 
Like the look of horror just, that comes across oh, no. all their fa- They're all like, oh, no. Oh, no. Because I'm sure everyone has probably heard at this point through the grapevine about Doug getting his fucking block knocked off by Tag a few episodes ago. Like, I'm sure that everyone has heard about this. So I'm sure they're just like, what is this fucking asshole about to say? Like, just keep it to yourself, dude. But he does. He behaves himself. Like, give it up. They're just all sipping their tea, so to speak. Also, who the fuck brings tequila to a goddamn... uh, Fucking Timmy, that's who. Exactly. I guess, but yeah, just pouring tequila from a brown bag while eating diner food. I don't know. It just, it seems very weird. Maybe I'm just not adventurous enough, clearly. Also, me and tequila don't get along. Actually, tequila's been pretty gentle to me. I mean, I've taken a fifth of vodka on the red line and poured it into big gulps with Nick and Robin before, (coughs) before concerts, so shit happens. We all had our adventurous times in our early 20s. This was like two years ago. (laughs) That was still your... God, I'm old. That was my mid-20s. I'm in my late 20s now. I'm old. You're 30. I'm 31. Thank you My point is you're in your 30s. Yikes. On that note, this was a solid... I'd say this was a solid mid-tier episode for me. I liked this one. I liked it, but they're like... Some of the parts that brought it down, like, really brought it down for me. But, like... So, like, there's some fantastic acting in here. So, like, it's... It's solidly, like, upper-middle-tier... Not like, I wouldn't call it among the best so far, but it's definitely pretty It's an episode that has a message and has something to say, but unfortunately undercuts it with some humor that doesn't always land. And so, you know, it's, it kind of undermines the message, the the larger message, which I, like I said, I, I think is one that is important to talk about and it's one that does not get talked about nearly and it's a subject that nobody wants to talk about you know so it's important and i think they do a really good job with it in the times where they do directly address it but then they for whatever reason feel like they have to like kind of cut the tension with this like comedic stuff and you know if it were done better or done with a little bit more tact it could work but it just kind of it it diminishes the impact a little bit so I mean you take what could have been like an a minus you know episode and it knocks it down to like a b minus or a c plus you know but it's still very solid exactly Lauren any thoughts about it I enjoyed it I think this is one of my favorite ones so far okay like we get a lot of character development, which is something I'm always really in love with in my dramas, such as, um, like, Mad Men. Like, it's an episode where nothing necessarily happened, but we got a lot of things moving around as far as um, Susan. We get to see more development with her, and we get to see what challenges she's going through now. We get to see Carter having to step up and be a bit of a teacher, and how is he going to handle that? We see Doug realizing that... He really does want something with, wow, I was doing such a good job remembering her name. Linda. Deb? Oh, no. Linda, yeah. Yeah. He wants something real with Linda, and he's trying to move forward with Carol. And, like, we got a li- lot of really good character moments that are going to be really important for this season yes. moving forward. Agree on all points. Cool. All right. Well, that'll about wrap up our episode for today. Thank you all very much for listening, as always. We always greatly appreciate it. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We are at SetTheToneER. We are also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SettingTheTonePodcast. And we are at SettingTheTonePodcast on Instagram. You can also support this show on Patreon at Patreon.com slash SettingTheTonePodcast. You can help your fellow patrons unlock bonus shows. 
uh, including special season recap episode, which is coming up, you know, quicker than we realize. We're already just about halfway through the season one already. So help us unlock that, and uh, we also can you can and you can also help us unlock uh, monthly bonus show where we just sort of talk about what's ever whatever's up for us in terms of you know our pop culture consumption and current events and just a slice of our lives. And we're also going to be uh, releasing uh, movie commentaries in the in the new year, hopefully through Patreon. Uh, we'll see. It's kind of an ambitious Patreon tier, but. We will see what we can do about that, uh, but just basically like us doing movie commentaries about on movies that with featuring various ER stars. So we're very much looking forward to that. Um, our theme music today, and as always, was provided to us by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music. And Daniel, where can folks find you at? Uh, they can find me on Instagram at dan.u.el, that is y-o-u.el. Uh, they can also find me on my other podcast, The Popular Court, with my co-host Jake Terrell. Uh, we take a different pop culture topic and put it through a little mock trial uh, each week. One of the more recent episodes, by the time you're hearing this, uh, will have been our best of 2019 episode, uh, where we just kind of take a step back and evaluate uh, what we thought were the best things in games, movies, TVs, and music uh, for 2019. So we're excited about that. Awesome. And Lauren, where can folks find you at? Folks can find me on my personal Twitter at lowbob92345. And I am also on Twitter. Mine is at randomgamer. It's JM3R. Uh, thank you again very much, everyone, for listening. Please join us again next week for episode number 14, and have a great week.